Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and today I am doing something that uh, I've kind of wanted to do for a long time. It's a bit unprecedented for the show, but we're doing a roundtable panel discussion uh, on a subject that I know almost nothing about. So I'm not going to be very helpful, but I'm sure that all of my guests are. Uh, I'd like to welcome them. Two of them have been on the show before. Our first time guest is Derek. And then we have John from the Deep Purple Podcast, and of course, Julie Gort-Finn, who has been on the show recently with a wonderful cover album that she has just completed with her husband, John, another just awesome musician. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, great. Fantastic. Cool. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Um, I'm going to uh, have you each introduce yourselves and, uh, and and talk about like what your connection is to our subject, which is kind of the the rise and fall of grunge music and i'll just start out by saying the reason that i know almost nothing about it is because i i heard a couple songs that i thought okay these are cool i like these songs and the rest of what i heard i just never really connected with i didn't find songs that um i really felt had an emotional tie to them they were kind of just almost um emotionless uh, and and i'm thinking of bands like soundgarden which which the songs that i became familiar with were just very straightforward almost like um, I'm paid to sing these words, so that's what I'm going to do instead of I'm singing a story that I feel or here's what happened to me and why I need to share this. So I disconnected with it very early, and I honestly don't think that I gave it a fair shot because of that. I'm sure there's songs out there that I would absolutely love if I knew what to listen to. So I'm hoping to kind of learn some stuff from you guys today. Um, Julie, I want to start with you because... You lived there during all this. I mean, this was, you were right in the middle of it and you're a guitar player. So uh, you probably have some interesting insight as to how this all came about. Uh, just give us a, a, an idea of who you are for newer listeners and uh, let us know what your initial connection to grunge was. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to probably talk in a circle here, but um, so I started learning guitar in the 80s. And I'm just a big fan of instrumental rock guitar, Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, Eric Johnson. And when I initially moved to the Pacific Northwest, uh, I started an instrumental trio because that was my passion and what I was into. And I would say our style was prog rock, you know, in the vein of my heroes. And here we are coming about in this age of grunge. <laughs> so I'm not an expert in grunge, although I was working at Tower Records when everything sort of exploded. Before I left, uh, we were just getting um, Alice in Chains, Man in the Box, then Nirvana. Um, so, you know, I saw the debut album from Pearl Jam. I just, I saw all these things exploding during that time. So I was kind of going against the grain. That's kind of what was happening in my world. And so. I, I've known you since high school, and I've I've seen you play or, or listened to you play many times, and I can say you definitely have the chops to be able to hold up to those heroes of yours. Well, thank I, you. I was listening thank to you. Satriani play uh, just the other day the song War, which was uh, <laughs> a favorite of mine. And uh, man, that it, the song is like really simple, but at the same time, it's really intricate. And I just I just love the forward motion of it, and and you know, when Satriana just adds his little flavor into it, you know, it just, yeah. you, you couldn't ask for more, but you've definitely got the chops to keep up with those guys. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. It means uh, a lot. John, this, uh, this whole 
idea was yours. You came to me uh, a while ago. And, and I thank you guys all for hanging in there with the scheduling. I know it's been a little difficult trying to get the four of us in the same place at the same time. Um, John, how did you come up with this idea? And, and of course, I, I want to say, too, you're from the Deep Purple podcast. We've got a couple of episodes reviewing Toys in the Attic coming up uh, after this episode airs, which I'm really excited to, to do. That was a fun episode. Um, what is your connection to grunge music and why are you doing a Deep Purple podcast? <laughs> well, um, to answer your first question, um, um, I, I'm pretty sure that I came up uh, with the idea or the the concept. Um, I can't remember if I had um, was talking to, to uh, Derek and our other friend about it. Um, Eric, maybe six or seven months ago, I think we saw each other, mm-hmm. um, which was the first time we'd seen each other in quite a while. Um, and we were going to, uh, we're going to a show and, um, on the, on the car ride, I was, um, you know, I, I feel like I was talking about this idea and, um, you know, we'd, we'd always, uh, Derek and I, uh, grew up together. Um, so I want to, um, kind of qualify that we started, uh, you know, we went to school with, uh, like starting in seventh grade. So we've known each other for years. So we, you know, I feel like we have different, you know, uh, kind of differing opinions on it because I was very like, very like, you know, um, hard and fast in my music tastes. like, this is it and nothing else. Um, I'm a little, little more, um, little more understanding these days, but, um, we, we started batting around this conversation, um, you know, in the car and it was, um, you know, these guys have always loved to talk music and, you know, come up with a lot of great points and, um, you know, kind of debatable topic, uh, respectfully, of course. And I was just like, wow, this would be, this is, you know, is as kind of stimulating as I thought it would be like, this would make a great, you know, show, um, because it's something that, you know, I've kind of talked to Nate about doing, but it's not really in our wheelhouse on our podcast. Um, you know, maybe as a bonus episode or something, but it's something that I haven't really heard a lot of podcasts talk about, especially because I'm, uh, you know, very similar taste of music to, uh, to Julie, um, you know, and she was talking about, um, I was, uh, talking to, um, one of my friends about the first kind of like instrumental guitarist I like was Satriani because a guy at a record store, had, uh, introduced me to him. Um, but my tastes were like glam metal when I first started listening to music. So that was exactly the type of music that, you know, at the time, uh, whether I thought so or whether I thought so, because everybody was telling me was what killed my favorite music or made it less popular. Um, so that's why I had a um, disdain for grunge. Um, or at the time, I don't even I don't even think we called it grunge back then. I think it was just called alternative music, mm-hmm. um, which once it became popular, that was kind of a kind of a moot point. You know, you can't call it alternative anymore because it became so big. But um, yeah, at the time, I just I, I loathed it. I couldn't stand it. And um, but I mean, in the coming years, you know, with maturity and, you know, uh, growing musically, even though I still love the same bands and listen to the same music primarily that I always did, I can understand that it's it's music that, as you said earlier, Scott, that I just never connected with. And, you know, had I given it a chance or if I did now, I would probably find something in there that I enjoy. Yeah, I, I find that, uh, you know, in by I think the mid 80s, because I was born in 72. And by the mid 80s, I think I had locked in the majority of bands that I really wanted to pursue. And these are the bands that are, I'm going to listen to on a regular basis. And I kind of started closing myself off, I think, to new music. Whereas when MTV first came out, every video I wanted to see it, who's this band? What's this song? I was really excited. 
but by the mid eighties, I'd kind of dialed it in, you know, like these are my bands. And by the time that grunge came out or, or like you said, alternative, uh, I, I feel like I, I wasn't really open to anything new and then not really loving what I did here right off the bat. Uh, I think it just kind of turned me off to it. I mean, there were some, mm-hmm. there were some really good songs. Obviously, Smells Like Teen Spirit was a huge hit right off the bat. Um, Even Flow by Pearl Jam was another one that, that was really good. Uh, I'm thinking more like the slower songs like Plush. And I was in a band that played that song. And as the drummer, I mean, I could, I might as well be playing country music from the 40s. You know, there's just nothing in a song like that for a drummer. Uh, Derek, how about you? Yeah, so uh, as John said, he and I have known each other since seventh grade, and um, it's funny, at at that point, my tastes were probably more aligned with John's, um, kind of uh, early on, um, definitely in that realm of glam and hair metal and that type of stuff, and it's funny, my... And I was actually trying to find online if I could confirm the specific memory I have around that transition point between um, kind of hair metal and and grunge. And in my head, at least, I remember watching like a good little headbanger, watching Headbangers Ball on MTV you know, late at night. And um, at the I think the last video of the night, Ricky Rockman saying something like, Hey, we're going to close out with this new video from this new band um, called Pearl Jam. Um, you know, I hear that there's, it seems like there's a really cool scene happening up there. We're going to keep an eye on it. So here's, you know, one last new video, Pearl Jam. And I remember sitting there and kind of being like, after watching whatever, however long Headbangers Ball was, you know, two hours of like, you know, teased out hair and spandex and the whole thing and bright lights. And all of a sudden, here comes this black and white performance video of these guys just you know stage diving and like this very kind of grungy very elemental type of thing and uh, me sitting there going all that other stuff is really cool this is also cool but in a completely different manner right Mm -hmm. i kind of dug it and and for me i i always straddled both of those and you know, for me, unlike the three of you, I am not a musician. Uh, I am just a huge music geek. Uh, I've seen over 250 uh, bands and bands and artists live, um, you know, tons of concerts. And I actually am a bit wonky in that case in terms of like, I keep a spreadsheet of every show I've ever been to. And I actually, out of curiosity, I went back and I, I did a quick sort and I kind of did, I literally looked at all the artists I've seen. And I said, and I typed hair or 90s next to each one of them and did a quick start. And I've seen almost exactly the same number of bands from kind of each group, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, during that grunge era, when John and I and um, our other friend Eric and, and others kind of high school and post-high school were kind of in our prime concert-going period, honestly, probably saw more hair metal bands <laughs> in that period than technically some of those other bands, right? Some, than some of the 90s mm-hmm. bands um, and some of those... Um, grunge and alternative bands um sometimes i look back and like damn i missed a chance to see you know pearl jam at the first Lollapalooza or something like that um but i get to say that i saw some really cool bands um you know at uh, at other venues and stuff so that's my kind of connection to grunge and and kind of being in both camps of still and still to this day i love pearl jam 10 I also love listening to some good old Poison and Motley Crue as well. As well. So I'm happy listening to both. <laughs> I, I like that you said that because I, I feel like uh, at least a lot of what I see in social media and, and a lot of what I remember from people being in high school is 
people feel like they have to stay in a certain lane, like I'm a rocker or I'm a right. country guy or I'm a rapper or whatever. And I don't see why we're we're so closed off to saying, you know what? I, I listen to a lot of rock and roll, but I like some pop. I like some country. I like a couple rap songs. You know, I, I, I don't, I, I've never understood why we've needed to identify ourselves that way and really pigeonhole. So I, I really like that, that we have some varied tastes, that we're open to different things. Uh, I remember when, when my brother played some Busta Rhymes for me, I'm like, why are you listening to Busta Rhymes? <laughs> and then the song he played for me, I'm like, holy crap, this is a great song. You know, I don't understand what he's saying. I, I I think I picked out three words in this whole song that I could understand, but I love the rhythm of it. I love the feel of it. They were using the um, the psycho suite from the movie, uh, the the creepy uh, strings, which I really like. But I mean, it was just an amazing song. And then I started listening to more of that. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And I joined a country band for a while and started listening to some of that and really opened up to. So I, I really hate that we we often feel that we have to to do that. So I'm very glad to see that you guys all have some really good very taste in music. Um, in, in the opening, I kind of alluded to the fact that I think I've really misjudged this genre of music. Um, Julie, what what do you think that I'm not seeing? Or, or do you see things the same way that I do? That it's a lot of just, I'm singing because I'm supposed to sing and not because I'm feeling this story and want to share it with you. You know, though, I, I was just, you know, thinking of this whole conversation and how you know, being rooted in the 80s, everything about the recordings in the 80s, as we got to 88, 89, it's almost like everything was uh, quantized to a click. All the delay was quantized to the click. Everything was pristine and perfect. And even some people weren't even playing on their own albums because they had the studio musicians wanting to play it perfect, you know, and they would take hundreds of takes. I heard about um, Mariah Carey, all the the slices of the tape on the cutting room floor because they they literally had to get everything perfect. And then here comes this grunge where that just went out the window. I think it was a reaction. Just let's try to be raw and let's try to be emotive. And I think if you didn't, I feel like that's what I got from it was like, this is a whole new expression. People want the raw, they want the emotion. And so that's kind of what I was hearing in it. So the fact that you didn't hear that, I just I think that was a little strange, but maybe because it was so diverse from what we were used to, you know, I think it was maybe particular songs that I heard thinking about songs yeah, like like plush and maybe more the Soundgarden kind of thing. Like I, I really did not. I like his voice, but I really just did not like a lot of the songs that I heard from Soundgarden. And that is one of the main bands that defines that time for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because because I heard them early on. I kind of felt like I don't, I just don't care for this music very much. And when I heard Nirvana, I didn't really see them as that same thing. I didn't feel like they were part of it because their songs were the songs I knew, like, like, uh, you know, in bloom or smells like teen spirit were like real energy and, you know, a lot of emotion and stuff going on uh, vocals that I felt like he was singing from his soul as opposed to Soundgarden. I felt that from like, Soundgarden. Really? I did. I was I yeah, feel same like here. they were playing in 5-4, they were playing altered tunings on the guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Cornell really was expressive to me, but maybe um, it didn't come across to you. Yeah, it, it didn't. And, and it could, you know, and a lot of times too, and I have to be fair, uh, it's, it could be the mood you're in, what's going on in your life, yeah. what kind of day you're having the first time you hear something. And if you're, if you're just not uh, receptive in that moment that you first experienced something, that's kind of an automatic you're really fighting an uphill battle to get me to like it right off the bat, right? 
so so I have to be fair and say that there very may well have been an, an element of that. Um, but other songs like Even Flow, I absolutely loved. I thought that was a great song. And I didn't equate it with the same kind of music because it didn't have that. Like, I just assumed, I think, that all that music was, oh, and, and just, you know, I want to be depressed and share that with you when I don't really think that was a fair assessment. Yeah, I would encourage you to listen to more. I think maybe my uh, advantage was that working at the record store, they would put the record on, it would play it in its entirety, and mm-hmm. then we'd be on to the next one. So I was just constantly bombarded with every single song on every single album. So when you're exposed over and over, then it kind of starts to set in. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Think. Until your brain just tunes out the, the music yeah. in the room. Like when I worked at Pro Sound Music, I could walk by some guy banging away on a drum set or somebody wailing on a guitar and not even hear it because I, my mind was just like, you don't need to pay attention to this, you know, unless it was smoke on the water and then I would stop. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and Julie too, uh, I played in a, in a band for a little while with Greg Chavez from Colorado Springs, who, who I think, you know, and, uh, we were doing like really progressive jazz fusion type stuff. And there was a song that, that we were working on and and we, we were kind of like, we can never play this on stage. It's just dead. I mean, it's like, it's interesting, but it's just dead. It has no energy. And I started thinking about bands like Soundgarden. I'm like, how do they do a show? I mean, does everyone like show up and they just kind of stand there and look at each other and go, eh. (laughs) <laughs> no, it would be a frenzy. Yeah. Soundgarden shows. Yeah. It was like nuts at some of those. Well, John, uh, you know, since you kind of had the, the same mm-hmm. shut off to it initially, how do you feel about, about it now? Do you Are you able to go back and listen to some of those songs and go, yeah, I really wish I would have been listening to this earlier? You know, I, I, I kind of haven't tried. I mean, I guess you could say that like at first, like whatever it was 30 years ago, I was angry at it. And now I'm just kind of indifferent to it. Um, I think that, um, you know, Nate and I joke around about, uh, you know, if something grunge comes up on the podcast, I'm always like, boo, you know, and it's like, you know, I, 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 I ham it up, but I mean, it's not really, you know, he just knows it's not my music. So I'm like, well, let me, let me see if I could listen to some, I, I don't know. I think I put on Nirvana or something. And I was like, I, I just couldn't really make it through a song, a couple of songs. I'm like, eh you know, turned it off. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I will say like some of that, like post grunge stuff, um, like, um, um, uh, what's the name? Like audio slave. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually listened to years after the fact, I don't know if maybe a song came on, uh, maybe it was like a you know, serious radio or somebody played it. And I was like, Oh, let me check this out. And I actually thought it was really good. Um, uh, for, for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe, you know, that, that just hit me, but, um, you know, at the time, you know, that, you know, that music never really, and it still doesn't really resonate with me. I mean, if I, if I listened to it, if I gave it a fair shake, like if, if one of you guys said like, here's the, here's the best of like, you know, early nineties grunge, like compilation or something like, listen to it, which somebody did that to me with the Beatles, you know, they're just like, here's my Beatles playlist because the Beatles had never been another one that really connected with me either. So I'm like, you know, I know some of their songs, but I'm not like, and I, you know, and I found some, you know, I found some on there as, Oh, this is, this is pretty good. Um, And I mean, it's hard, you know, to, to hear like maybe a Beatles song you haven't heard at this point, but um, you know, for, for um, alternative songs, grunge songs, whatever, I'm sure there's a lot that I haven't, but I mean, I've heard all the stuff that was on the radio and to me, my perception at the time was, is that it was just a bunch of mopey, 
you know, teenagers, 20 somethings dressing down and just being depressed. And that's what was that was the messaging coming from like my side anyways. So it was in stark contrast, everything that I was getting into, which was really, uh, you know, uh, like image oriented, fashionable, exciting. And I was just just been into Kiss for only a couple of years. And I mean, they're one of the most theatrical bands you know, that there were even the the first show that um, that I went to, which, you know, Derek was uh, there with me was uh, Kiss in 92, um, which um, was, you know, as I found out years later, was probably one of their worst attended tours um, of like, you know, the, the past 10 years um, at that point. Uh, but I mean, to me, it was like, you know, fantastic, you know, for, for all I knew at the time, it was like their most successful tour. But um you know, it's, um, that, that was the world that I was living in. It just, it was like, it just went in contrast to everything that I, you know, that I loved or that I like kind of, you know, pictured myself being or listening to or something that got me excited because there was no, to me, there was no theatricality about it. There was no, nothing exciting in the music or the image or that made me want to go see shows or buy the albums. It was just a really kind of, it, it, it depressed me. So I'm just like, meh. So I just kind of tuned out from it. And yeah, um, I can understand that. I think for, for me thinking about songs like uh, black hole sun, for example, I really wanted to like that song. I mean, everybody I knew was like, Oh, this song's great. You got to check it out. And and there's some things about the production. I love, I love the guitar sound on that song, but what I didn't get was I just didn't get enough from, from the singer. And I thought this song could be really good if he could make me feel what he was singing about. You know, and and coming from the the bands that I grew up listening to, like Deep Purple and Rainbow and White Snake and King Crimson and Emerson Lake and Palmer, when I listen to those guys, I feel the stories that they're singing. You know, their their singers are are very good about drawing me in, even though I'm not a <clears throat> lyric guy. Like I really look at the vocals more as an instrument, and almost don't care what the story is. If I can just get something out of the feel of the vocals, then that will make me feel whatever they're saying. Uh, but, but with that, I just couldn't, I couldn't get there. And I think, like I said, that was an initial turnoff and it just kind of killed my desire to really dig into it further. I'm like, why do I want to waste my time listening to music that I already know I can't feel instead of being really open and giving it a chance, you know? Well, the, the other interesting thing too, is, is that a lot of these bands at the time, like I, I was reading, um, you know, magazines, guitar world, like, um, you know, hit parade or whatever, they were listing like black sabbath kiss like all sorts of bands that i liked as their influences so you would think like oh well i should love these guys you know and it's like and they did do stuff that influenced them from those bands but you know it didn't it kind of wasn't enough you know what i mean like i i guess i kind of respected them for that but it you know it didn't translate into me like you know kind of generating any interest you know right so uh, Derek, how about you? When when you first started to really dig into it, what were the bands that were the the bands that were doing it for you? You know, it's funny. Uh, Nirvana always gets mentioned as you know the one that really broke through and stuff. And to be honest with you, for me, in the list of those bands, Nirvana is not at the top. Like uh, it's it's I, I don't want to just go as far as saying, I think they're overrated, but eh, I could probably make it, you know, I could probably go there. Um, and uh, for me, I think it's always been, I always felt like, Oh, I get the, the break in the sound from where we were in rock and roll to where, uh, where they came in. But I always felt like, 
I don't think they, I mean, it kind of felt like a little punkish and uh, like some other things. Like it felt like I could really make some direct connections to things, to some things uh, previously not completely new and inventive. Um, so actually for me, I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. Um, they were one that really did it for me. I did like Soundgarden, um, but not a ton. Um, I mean, I, and I actually, I probably have liked them more as time has gone on. I did see them live um, at probably one of the most 90s lineups ever, which was Blind Melon, Soundgarden, and Neil Young. Um, <laughs> you basically had to wear flannel to get into the door. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, and they were great. They were great live. And that was just before Super Unknown came out. So they were still kind of like underground and like not quite breaking through. And then, you know, Super Unknown came out and Black Hole Sun and My Wave and all those things just absolutely blew up for them. Um, Alice in Chains was one that probably, I would say Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains were the two that feel like the most, um, that that really did it for me the most. And what's interesting about those two, I would make the argument that those two probably have the most connection to the kind of the heavy metal and rock from the 80s, 70s and 80s. I mean, Pearl Jam 10 is basically an arena rock album with, more mumbly lyrics right i mean it's 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 great guitar it's great tunes right it, it's it's a great album in that regard and then alice in chains i mean they're heavy they're, they you know and, and when you think about those four bands and then you say yep that's all the same music it's kind of crazy to think that they all got lumped together because alice in chains and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Soundgarden, I mean, they all had very distinct and different sounds, and yet they all got really put into that one one grouping. But I loved Alice in Chains, still like them to this day, and um, they were one that really um, like caught my attention and liked to listen to them a lot. <laughs> was it maybe a case that everything that was coming out of Seattle at that time was just going to be labeled alternative or grunge just because of the time yep. and location of it? Yeah, yeah. And like, it's funny, I, I completely think that's it. And you mentioned Plush a few times from Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, Stone Temple they, Pilots. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Plush from Stone Temple Pilots and that first album, I think I still like that album. It's an album that for me, for Stone Temple Pilots, I listen to with nostalgia. Their other albums I listen to, and I think that they still hold up. And I think they got completely just pigeonholed. They're like, oh, look at their grunge. And they got put into that into that grouping and honestly if i think if if that album had come out probably a few years later they would have been probably thrown in they could have been thrown into some of the hair metal mix right i mean you know with a, with a with a heavier deeper end but um they got caught up in that i think over the years they they managed to break away from that a bit um and like i said some of their later albums i think still hold up really really well to this day yeah, and I have to apologize to Stone Temple Pilots. I, I was in a band and played that song, and I couldn't remember who did it. So it shows how disconnected I am from this whole thing. Uh, either that or I'm getting old. So I'll be in the corner turning mm. to dust if you guys want to finish the podcast. Uh, Julie, you you mentioned the the production, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, I feel like that was one of those times where they were starting to get back to almost the way that punk kind of came in from disco and said, you know what, we just need to be raw and natural and record that instead of everything having to be so perfect. Um, I think that that we were also kind of our ears were just getting tired of that 80s production. You know, the the just the way that they were mixing things and mastering things at the time. Um, I didn't know any better at the time until we started to get away from it. And I have to say, production wise, I do think that we had some great recordings uh, of, 
of alternative bands because the you know obviously the technology was changing. They were starting to head towards digital. Um, they were just using better equipment, and I think overall they were mixing things a lot better. So I think that helped maybe uh, just sonically, you know. Um, but as you as you were watching this develop, I'm curious what was going on in Seattle at the time as far as like local concerts and things like that. Because what we're talking about is really bands that made the mainstream, right? What yeah. was happening like around Seattle in the clubs? Well, there was a shift. Um, I could feel. But, I, you know, I moved in 91, you know, and I started playing around in 92. But what I did find was there was room for what we were doing, which was so amazing. I mean, of course, undoubtedly, every single show, they'd say, why don't you have a singer? <laughs> you know, I'd have to explain. But uh, he, we, I didn't play with any of the big people. But, you know, when there's big breakthroughs with a band like Nirvana Soundgarden, there's going to be a bunch of people following that sound but the community was so huge we had wonderful places to play um seattle was just loaded with these small clubs and all there'd be like five bands every weekend night so it was really really a fun time there were festivals we played a lot of outdoor summertime things but i felt this it was like camaraderie acceptance and you know how we were talking about in high school, I was like a rocker. Mm -hmm. I just had to be the rocker. I had to wear the jean jacket. That was the thing. New kids on the block. I I would always boo them when they came on the top 20 video. We <laughs> <laughs> had to be number one or whatever. Right. But kids these days, I'm a teacher. So, you know, they are, they listen to everything with every single song at their fingertips it's really cool and refreshing to see how varied their taste is and how, you know, they just, they're into anything. Like, and one thing is they don't listen to whole albums. They pick one song here and one song there. Mm -hmm. The whole, the whole world has changed with the, the way we listen to music now. So yeah. it's cool. It's refreshing there. And there was room for me in that space, even though what I was doing was totally different. You know, and I and I like to see this next generation open to many different things, too. I really like that. I like that kids are not taking the path that we did and just saying, nope, <laughs> not really right. giving things a fair chance. You know, I'm really looking at you, John, and, and myself when I say that. Uh, but I, I think that's great. And I think also, uh, and by the way, you're teaching at Berkeley. You're not just teaching like you're teaching at one of the best places in the world to learn music, which is just <laughs> awesome. I love that. Uh, but I but I love what you're seeing there from the kids because it, it just gives me hope that they're not doing the pigeonholing thing that we did. And because it, music of all types can be wonderful and enjoyable and there could be great songs in every type of music. Um, there's disco I like. Like I said, there's some rap songs I like and some country songs I like. And, and if you would have asked me 20 years ago, I would have said you're out of your mind if you ever thought I would ever listen to a rap artist. <laughs> you know, it just... And I grew up in Detroit, so that was, you know, kind of a, a thing there with Eminem and all. Um, but... One of my first records was Run DMC. I just was it really? To... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, there you go. Very cool. Um, but I, I also love the fact that, that it was just at least getting more open and raw. Like we didn't have to be 100% on the beat. It just had to have that drive and just keep you zoned into it. And I, I take that back to the 70s when a lot of those earlier rock bands were playing they weren't playing to click tracks because click tracks didn't exist. And you can hear it. You know, you can hear where they're supposed to stop at exactly the same time, but they're slightly off from each other. And I love it because it's more human. 
And I feel like in a lot of ways in studio production, we've gone back to that 80s, everything has to be right Mm -hmm. on the beat thing again. They're fixing all these things in the studio and it just doesn't Mm -hmm. feel as natural now. What do you think, John? Yeah, that that's something that we talk a lot about on uh, on my podcast is um, is how when uh, especially like uh, you've heard the isolated tracks episodes where we uh, will listen to you know each individual track and you know almost every time we're just like oh see if they did that today they would have taken it out or they would have corrected it or fixed it and then you know taking it as a, a into you know account as a whole we're just like this is why this song is so great because it's not a hundred percent on it's organic you know and that's that comes through in the in the final product even if you don't know why and breaking the song down like that um i think you know helps you figure that out um but yeah i do i do agree that like uh i, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing you know i mean i you know, I like, I like a lot of, uh, you know, current stuff that I've heard. Um, I mean, does it grab me the same way as like, you know, my, my music, uh, grab me like when I first heard it? No, but I mean, um, you know, that's, that's how things are changing, you know, like, uh, like Julie said, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, uh, people listen to singles now instead of full albums or they, you know, cherry pick. And I mean, you know, I, even I do it with like my old albums, you know, I'll listen to playlists or a couple of songs here and there rather than full albums anymore. But that's because you can, you know, um, but um, there was um, there was actually a couple of other points that I was thinking of when uh, when um, when um, if I can go back to it, sure, when yeah. when Derek was when Derek was talking about um and I think one of the the things that kind of like had me, you know, when I pigeonholed grunge alternative music together was, is that when you don't know a genre of music, you think it's all the same because take a look at like, uh, if you pick out like, you know, uh, Poison, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses, they're all under the same banner, but they're not the same kinds of bands. Like, I mean, anybody that knows that music knows that they're three distinctive types of bands. Oh, they're all hair metal. Nah, not yeah, really. True. Not really. So, I mean, I think that in that same way, I was being unfair to those bands as well, because as Derek mentioned, like, it's really, it was really interesting that like, you know, this band was considered, uh, you know, grunge or lumped in with all these because they're really not that style of music. They might be, you know, in the broader sense, the same style um, or came from the same place or whatever, you know, maybe clicked off some of the boxes. But, you know, I think that that's a, you know, a prejudice that, you know, stops some people from, enjoying certain types of music um and it's i think it certainly did for me that's a really fair point and and i'm just realizing too how how we do that with a lot of things in life i mean we do it with uh food we say well i don't i I don't want to eat vegan or you know we we kind of generalize there we generalize with race i mean we say oh the russians attacked or or this group of people or whatever we're so uh judgmental in general Mm -hmm. ways when if you i'm sure if you met five Russians, they would probably be five completely different people, a couple that you'd like, a couple you'd be, eh, and one jerk, you know, because you're going to get that combination <laughs> with every race. And it's the same with bands, and it's the same with food and, and everything else. So that's that's a really interesting point. Um, let me ask you, Derek, as a non-musician, when you hear a song and everything is just perfect, and then you hear the whole album and everything is just perfect, do you feel that it sets a, a realistic portrayal of a band or an unrealistic? Like, I know they recorded this in a studio and I know that they they just released something perfect, but what are they like live? 
And are you talking about perfect because, like, from a production and performance standpoint? Yeah, for maybe mainly the performance. Like, there's no drums that are off time. Everything's just they they move perfectly together. Like, they're a synchronized swimming team. Yeah, I think it's a so it's a great question as a non musician because I'm honestly I'm probably not going to notice that. But I will what I will notice is the feeling I get from that. And so, if I'm listening to uh, a punk band that has that level of perfection. I'm probably going to like, just like my, my, my gut's going to tell me like, there's something wrong here. Right. Because I expect something more raw and more, um, uh, vital coming from this. But if I'm listening to something that's more, I expect to be more polished, uh, you know, EDM or something like that. If that is then suddenly starting to stray from, you know, beats and rhythms and that type of stuff that I'll probably notice more. So I think it really comes down to genre and expectations for me that, if the production is aligned with what I'm looking to kind of feel from the music, then that works for me, but I won't necessarily uh, hear it on my own. I actually, that's one of the things I, I love hearing kind of musicians geek out about, you know, production and, and about music because they will bring things, you know, make me notice things I just wouldn't notice on my own. Like, Oh, you know, that was a mess up there. I'm like, Oh, I, just thought that sounded kind of cool right mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um uh, i i think it's it's uh for some reason it makes me think about and john and i have traded a few uh messages about this you know recently aerosmith released a uh demo version of their first album um basically and some unreleased demos and that type of stuff and it's so interesting to hear that that i'm sure with a musician's ear you'd be hearing things all over the place that you can tell this was a bunch of drunken drugged out guys in the seventies doing a rough take on some songs and stuff like that to my ears as a music fan. I feel like if you took that album and you put it in front of a hipster in New York city and said that this was an underground band that's new and current, they would be like, this is awesome. Where can I hear them? Right. Mm -hmm. Because they sound so raw and so elemental. And so it's, I don't know. Maybe it just falls into the category of no new ideas, but I think it also falls into the category of, you know, that production and the music uh, meeting those expectations. I think the other thing coming back to kind of the hair metal and, and production and all those things, if you want to, you know, see something really fun, read fans reviews of basically the three big Def Leppard albums and the progression of those fans of moving from, and I forget what the first one is, but, you know, all the way to hysteria, right? Pyromania and then hysteria. The fans, that like those people that were with Def Leppard at the beginning, I, they don't like hysteria. And yet that's their biggest album, right? And I think that's a great example of what Julie was talking about as production got better. And I think it also is indicative of kind of where metal and hair metal and, and like kind of that rock was heading of so... Um, slick and so well produced that it turned some people off at that point. And so uh, I, I just was looking at it the other day, uh, some of the fan reviews of those albums, and I was kind of struck by, you know, biggest album for the band. And yet so many of the people that liked them were like, this is my least favorite album, except for these two songs on it. <laughs> well, it seems like when, when somebody's been following a band for a while and all of a sudden they hit some major commercial success, there's this, <laughs> yeah. well, they sold out or they're not the band that I knew or they're not the band I want them to be. It's like, 
musicians evolve as they learn, they experience things from not only their writing, but what they're listening to, uh, if they're out playing live, their touring experiences, all those things are, are added to the mix and then brought to the next project. And then <laughs> you add more and bring that to the next project. So bands are going to evolve like Metallica, for example, has evolved so many times or Uriah Heep is another one, you know, cause I've covered 307 songs of theirs on my other show and I, I can tell you the band that they started out to be in 1969 and the band they are in 2022 is completely different and they've morphed into so many things. But but people tend to get very possessive of yeah. their favorite era of the band, which is usually whatever era they first came across. So if yep. they if they found Uriah mm-hmm. Heep in 1971, that's the band that they always want them to be. And I'm like, well, I get that, but bands are going to evolve. They're going to try different things. They're going to they also mm-hmm. have to change with the times too. You know, the music that's around today is going to be an influence. So there's so much that goes into that, but they do tend to get very progress, uh, uh, possessive and, and say, it's not what I want the band to be and they're my band. So I should have a say, mm-hmm. well, I'm sorry, but you can't stop nature from evolving things. Mm. You know, um, Julie, I'll throw, I'll throw that question to you because you're dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, aspiring musicians of, of all different levels. Do you think that, this this polished kind of music that we're listening to now kind of, and i and i could kind of equate it to modeling right like like a young girl will watch like maybe she wants to model or be in pageants or something and she'll watch these people that have been doing it for a while and their bodies are absolutely perfect or maybe too skinny you know unhealthy or whatever because that's the expectation that we've set for what beauty is and they're now being held to a standard as a beginner of if you want to do this professionally you have to be that and you have to get there quick. It's kind of an unrealistic expectation because they're not being given that chance to grow. I kind of feel like maybe potentially that same thing is happening to musicians in this world of perfect studio recordings. Everything's fixed and dialed in. Even the live recordings are edited to be perfect. Um, are you seeing any of that with your students where they, they're kind of held to that expectation? Well, I think... It's kind of a, a two-sided story here because when, when someone wants to study music, there are certain guidelines. There's a curriculum to get a degree. There's a curriculum to get the, to the next level. So I'm always encouraging my students to practice and here's this mode and here's these technique and let's try this and this and this. And that's not necessarily part of what music is today. And as I'm studying songwriting, um, I look at the whole world of top line and, you know, there's like three producers creating a track. They send it out to 30 different top liners. Whoever sends them the best uh, verse chorus, sometimes they pick this person's chorus, this person's verse, and then they give it to an artist to record. And then there's like 10 people in the mix to share the <laughs> to share the wealth from the song. Mm-hmm. And then once they once the song is recorded, then they they use melodyne on the the vocal track and nothing is uh nothing is just recorded and released i mean it's all just per- perfected and whittled down to this this beautiful thing that comes out so as far as what i'm doing teaching guitar on a a real uh, like my my as far as a teacher my priority is to make sure my guitar players know how to improvise and know how to communicate and know the ins and outs of theory and and music and stuff like that. But then as far as releasing music and stuff like that, 
the big hits are the ones that are molded together in this weird way. So I'm kind of disconnected from that process in a way. So I'm not really teaching. I mean, I, I want to teach kids to be successful and to, to go after their careers. And I teach them there is so much space in the musical realm for you to have a career. You may not necessarily be the, the biggest superstar and play all the stadiums in the world, but you can work and be fulfilled in this environment. So it's kind of a, a really difficult thing, you know, because I want to be true to my own self and the craft of guitar and, you know, but that's not necessarily commercial. I don't know if that's answering the question, but yeah. it's a really weird place to be right now. Yeah, I can understand that. I'm thinking in terms of, of like a student comes to you and says, you know, I, I really I don't feel like I'm I'm as good as these guys or maybe they don't they feel like they have to get there really fast if they have ever an, an intention of competing in the more commercial world, because what oh, they're wow. seeing, everything is so polished, you know. Well, for me, I mean, I do struggle with this because my I, I'm never going to be the person that's going to strive to be the best. I'm not. I'm just always constantly looking at where I am today. I give myself 100% for what I have today. And my 100% today may not be the person, the 100 that I have tomorrow. But I know a lot of, of my friends, are. they're always like, oh, well, you're better than him. And I'm better than this person. And they're better than that. And to me, I suffer from anxiety. If I live in that realm, I am, I'm not going to survive. So I constantly am telling my students, you are good enough. You are worthy. You you just keep doing what you do and you find what you love. You find the sound you want to create and it is good enough. It's a battle. It's, it's a brutal, brutal world. Right it, now. it really is. And, and very cutthroat at times, depending on you know how far you get or if you start working with like an outside producer and, and a record company and that sort of thing. I, I've always thought if you if you write things that feel good to you and you write them honestly and you don't overthink them too much, like not from, uh, not from, uh, okay. Music theory states, I have to do this this way. You know, right. uh, I think if you're just writing naturally and you write things that feel good, maybe a shocking transition here and there isn't a bad thing. But I think if you're writing from the heart, I think there's other people that will pick up on that. If you can Absolutely. find a way to cut through the noise of everything that's out there and get it out to yeah. people, give them an opportunity to hear it. I think you have a chance of, of finding a fan base. I think it's when you try to overthink too much and say, well, uh, I just played an A, so the next note should be this, or I should, you know, right. that's when yeah, I think yeah. you start. But I think those those things, to have those tools is important because when you do get stuck, you're like, I just don't know what to do here. You know, what what's, what's a guideline or what's, you know, the norm or something like that. I think theory can be a great thing. But I think it can also be like a block as well. You know, we can start generating too many things that sound the same because we're all following that same methodology. Well, I always teach my songwriting students the main thing is how to get unstuck. You know, I'm not saying this is the rule for making the perfect song. It's never that. It's saying this is a way to start. This is a way to keep moving. And here's more ideas. Like just... Keep delving into that. Find your creative spot. Find the place where you can be you. And going back to the grunge, I mean, how bold and brave and audacious were they to say, I'm going to do something that is so different from everything that's out there. And I'm just going to be myself. And somehow it took off. I mean, how often do we get to do that? 
Yeah, I, I total props for that because and, and to the to the record companies and the agents that found them and said, hey, this is kind of cool and different. I think this is got let's do something with it instead of just going like they did with the Beatles. Nope. <laughs> Look at you, long-haired <laughs> hippies. Lots of notes. Yeah, so I, I think that was great. Uh, I, I see we're kind of running out of time here. So, uh, John, how about your final thoughts on grunge? How do you feel about it? Will you give it a chance? Where Where are you at with it now? Um, well, like I said before, um, I think you know I'm kind of um, I, I I guess I would say like indifferent. I guess kind of sounds um, yeah rude, <laughs> but I would say like. Um, it's it's not in my wheelhouse. I mean, there are a lot of styles of music that you know I don't align with, or I I either don't know about or never gave a chance. Doesn't mean that I hate them or you know I, I loathe them or wish anything bad on them. That was my <laughs> that was my thought process when I was a kid. But that's because in my mind, grunge killed hair metal, um, which we know is is like you know we could do a whole other we could do part two on that. You know whether. Hey. It, you know, that's that's true or not, which I mean, I would think now it's not entirely true. I mean, there are many different factors, but I would say like I did before that if, um, you know, if, if one of you guys like, you know, sent me like a, a Spotify playlist of like, you know, try these, try these, you know, songs from that era, like I would I would give them a chance. And I think that I'm, I'm sure that I would find something that I liked uh, because. You know, I, I had said about, um, you know, hair metal, which I mean, back when we were listening to it, I think it was just called hard rock. <laughs> you know, I think these terms came later. But I just remember thinking, you know, when you strip away like all the, you know, the makeup and the image and everything like that, all you have left is the the songs and the production, you know, even if the production can be, you know, tied to the time. So, I mean, it's just like if you're just listening truly with your ears, you know, it's all music and whatever you like is is going to be that way. It's not the the hairspray or the lipstick or whatever that, you know, or the, the flannel shirt that makes the, the, the music any good. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, based on that, I would, I would probably give it a try. Um, you know, like I said, if somebody was trying to sway me, um, you know, I, I'd listen. And like I said, I'm, I'm familiar because I mean, I didn't grow up like, uh, you know, in a, in a bubble. Like, I mean, I had heard some of this stuff. So, I mean, I am familiar with it. And I mean, um, as uh, you know, Derek was talking about listening to music, um, um, nostalgically before. And I mean, you know, some of it like it or not does hold a certain kind of nostalgia because, you know, that was, you know, I can tie it to different points in my life back then regardless. So, and, and to further your point, John, uh, when I met Roger Glover, I was talking to him about a symphony that I had written. And I said, you know, in a way, Deep Purple had a, a big influence on this between the way that a couple of the instruments interact with each other was very similar to the way that John Lord and Richie Blackmore would play together, kind of play off each other and, you know, kind of have a little bit of a competitive side, but work together at mm-hmm. the same time. And, uh, and he, he just looked at me and he said, it's all rock and roll. <laughs> and, and it didn't really hit me yep. at first, you know, it, but a while later it did. It's kind of like, you know, music is just music. This song is is done this way and that song is done that way. And it really kind of doesn't matter what you classify it as. If you like a song, you like a song. If there's something in it for you, it doesn't really matter what the what label it's under. Uh, you're either going to like right. it or not. Uh, and I mean, like people, it- except I tend to like music more. <laughs> and I mean, think about it from the from the point of view too of like how the uh, the Deep Purple podcast, how we founded that, was on that idea. Was is that 
here was a band that splintered off into like, you know, the deep purple family, as we call it. And there was, they like all these guys with uh, the, the core guys with all different musicians over the years did so many different projects and albums and styles of music mm-hmm. that weren't even like the same. It's like you had, you had Glenn Hughes would do it like a, like a funk disco type of thing. And Richie did his medieval thing. And then he got into pop and, and, you know, Ian Gillen was doing the, you know, kind of a jazz fusion thing. And then five years later, he's in black Sabbath, you know? So it's like, you could go on and on the, the concerto and all the stuff that, that John Lord did. So it's, um, you know, when you look at it that way, um, and then you would look at like the umbrella of like what grunge music is under. I'm sure that there's, there's got to be that there as well. I agree. And, and Julie and Derek, I'll, I'll ask you guys to do something for us. If you would send me maybe five songs that you would say, if, if I, you wanted to get me into this style of music, uh, send me five songs. I'll put those in the show notes for everybody who's maybe not as familiar, wants to give it a chance, or even just curious to see what you would pick. Uh, you know, and then John and I will listen to them and, and we'll see how we feel about them. But I, I think, I, I would love to take a dive into it if I just knew where to start so that I wouldn't walk into it with that, oh, God, I got to sit through this kind of attitude, because I really don't want to feel that way. But that's, you know, when John first said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the music I didn't like, because it was, you know. <laughs> uh, so if you would do that, I would appreciate it and put it in the show yeah. notes. Uh, Derek, what what are your final thoughts on on the subject of grunge? You know, I think a couple of things that have struck me that um, Julie and John have said and that um, bring some things to mind here one is uh, many years ago uh, had someone in the kind of design and photography world tell me for every uh, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction uh, and it was in that context of photography and all design and printing all that type of stuff but I have found you know, I'm a marketer professionally and uh, so I love consumer behavior and I think that applies to culture and we were talking about that transition from kind of that late 80s, very early 90s, kind of where rock was, metal, hard rock, glam, whatever you want to call it, to grunge. And that's what happened, right? It swung the other way. And actually, some of the conversations we were just having about where kind of some pop music is right now, it, like, it makes me wonder, like, I feel at some point we're going to see something swing the other way to like, whether it's going to be acoustic, whether it's going to be some sort of like really kind of grungy, like guitar driven type of stuff, something's going to come out of the other way. I think the other thing that when I, when I think about grunge, it's hard for me to separate in my head grunge specifically from the greater kind of explosion of music in the nineties. Cause it wasn't just grunge. Right. And if we're really talking about the topic of like, did grunge kill hair metal? I'm like, eh, I don't know if it killed it, but probably like it was already struggling if you will, because of all the things we've talked about, but then grunge came along. That was the opposite of it. But then the, the real rise of hip hop and rap during that same time period. And it feels like music splintered. And to think that in 1990, you've got hair metal kind of still kind of dominating the airwaves, especially in the rock and roll world. Then grunge came along. And then by 1999, we're entering the Napster age of things, right? And, and, you know, within that decade, how quickly things changed in the splintering of music and kind of the equalizing of genres that you could just bounce between them. And to hear Julie talk about that and, and right. And just, 
doesn't matter. You you don't have to pigeonhole yourself. You can just listen to whatever you want. And I've got a, a you know a Amazon Echo sitting over here that I could ask and you know ask it to play whatever I want across any genre of music, and it just makes it so accessible. So it's a for me. I think it's um, the other last thing I'll say is genres you mentioned this scott of like you know we tend to do that we tend to classify things and it, it is it's it's human behavior and it's a shortcut and it's a, it's about safety and it's about cycle it's really the psychological safety part of it of saying if i can categorize this i know what to do with it and there's a tendency to try to be very neat about that um when it when uh, as people uh, as humans and uh, it can be challenging to say, I'm going to change my assumptions about how I've categorized things. And so, love the idea. Happy to send you some songs of the grunge genre to see if uh, break that out. Um, that'll be a fun challenge to see if uh, 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 make change some minds here, as well as uh, actually, I owe myself. I, I need to get better acquainted with Uriah Heap. I am not familiar enough with them as a music fan, so I will do that as a favor to myself as well. God, if only somebody did a podcast on them. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and currently, for those of you that are listening, the, the podcast is on hold. Uh, I've covered everything that they've recorded, which is what I set out to do. Uh, they have not released album 25 yet. They are waiting, I believe, until the 50th anniversary tour, uh, which they're now on their going on their 53rd year. Uh, they're finally able to they just started the 50th anniversary tour. They just did their first show. Uh, so I'm hoping that once they've done that tour, then the new album will come out and they'll start touring for that. So then the show will pick back up covering that, maybe do some interviews with the band again, which would be a lot of fun. Um, Julie, uh, you get the final word. What do you have to say about uh, wh- how you're feeling about grunge these days? Because it's it's really kind of like it still exists, but it's really out of the focus yeah. now. Well, you know, I think in fashion, it seems to be coming back in. Mm-hmm. People are wearing Doc Martens again, which is all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I would say in 2022, none of us are obligated to like songs to dislike songs um it happened the 90s did come it changed a lot of things all of my favorite bands ended up not touring probably for a decade right but here we are again i just got to see motley Crue, joan jett (laughs) def leppard um was that all four of them who else was on that thing motley Crue, def leppard um it wasn't poison poison So how exciting. <laughs> uh, there's still so many people in love with that style, you know, and I think if Pearl Jam, they still have a market. Look how many albums they have. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, I haven't listened to all of them and I have not listened to all of Def Leppard's albums either as much as I do love them. Um, but what I, I'm just always drawn to the the 80s music. I don't know if it's just because I listened to it and I was such a loyal fan and I, I like you guys were saying, being able to go to the shows and have that be such an instrumental part of who I am and my childhood, it's just always going to resonate with me. Well, you so, know, uh, every, well, uh, uh, they've started up again uh, now that, that we're further away from the, the dangers of where we were with COVID. Uh, they do the, a lot of uh, lost 80s shows throughout the country during the year, like three or four bands will get together and do, you know, five or six dates. Uh, but in September, when they end their tour season, they all get together. The majority of them get together and they play here in Vegas uh, down oh, off really? of Fremont Street. I've been twice, oh, um, seen a flock of seagulls, Berlin, 
Um, wow. Uh, uh, they do cruises, too. They do cruises, right? yeah. Yeah, but it's with those and with the individual shows, it's like there's three or four bands that will do those, but there's like 12 bands that come together to do the final show here in Vegas. And it's just amazing. I mean, when uh, when Berlin did take my breath away, some really large muscled guy uh, who pretty much could probably step on me and crush my head was uh, carrying her around through the crowd on his shoulder while she sang that song. It was just like such a surreal, you know, amazing. If if we all still had lighters, they would have all been up, you know, up in the air. Uh, so that's something to consider for, for eighties fans to come out and see that show. But yeah, I, I really, um, I, I am looking forward to digging into this kind of music again, because I'm sure there's some stuff there that I would like, especially now that I'm a lot more open-minded than I was back in the nineties where I was like, nope, it's deep purple, white snake, black Sabbath, Uriah Heap, you know, those are my bands and I don't need anything else and some eighties tunes, you know? Uh, so thank you guys very much for, for coming on the show and talking about this. It's been very uh, enlightening for me and I'm sure for a lot of the listeners. Thanks for having oh. me. This was really fun. It was a pleasure to meet you all. Yeah, same yeah, here. too. Except for me, yeah. because we've known each other forever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I will add the way that Julie described herself in high school is exactly the way that she was. The only difference is that she had taller hair. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, me too. That to come back. Yes, yeah. I, it's not going to help me any now, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you guys, thank you very much. I will add your song list to the show notes, and this episode will air on uh, Wednesday at one a.m. Pacific time, uh, and I'll send you guys out the links and all that too. Uh, Derek, I don't have your email, so shoot that over to me, and then I'll have a, a contact with you. And thank you guys so much. We'll we'll have to do this again at some point, and, and see maybe do like a follow up and see how John and mm. I uh, feel after the the fact of, of having a new experience. Yeah. That'd yeah. Be that'll great. be interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. And thank you guys for listening. We'll see you. Oh, and it, it is basically going to be John Matola month uh, for all of September <laughs> since our, our Aerosmith toys in the attic review uh, basically spans three episodes. So uh, now I, I may cut, <laughs> I, I may cut into that with another episode of something else if it comes up, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's going to be John Matola month. So then, and you can listen to him on the deep purple podcast. I've got links for Julie in the show notes for all the wonderful things that she does, her online classes, her uh, videos that she does with her husband, John, uh, just some really amazing stuff. So check all that out. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Haskin Cast podcast. <laughs>